Hello, everyone, and welcome to DataFem, where we engage you with stories of how innovators across the globe are using data to achieve new heights in their respective industries. I'm Danielle, founder of Decayo Data, and I'm here with two very special guests from Varent, which is this episode's sponsor. Jenny Pelosic and Trudy Cannon are the focus of this episode's discussion, and you'll hear more about Varent and what they do a little later on in the episode and also in the show notes. So without further ado, I'd love to start off this lovely episode of Datafilm. And thank you, as always, for listening. So, yeah, I mean, I'm just so happy to have both of you here, and I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while now. I'd love for both of you to introduce yourselves and just tell me a little bit about what you do at Varent to get started. Jenny, if you want to go first. Sure. I'm really happy to be here today, too. Data is a topic that we talk about a lot here at Varent. Um, I've been with the company for more than 10 years. And my role has changed um, throughout that time. And it's been great to be able to move through marketing, product strategy, um, go-to-market operations. Um, Today, I have a team that focuses on sales enablement, but also around insights, experience, and enablement. So we do a lot around customer experience, and there's a lot of data around that, um, both from a user experience and a customer and partner experience perspective, the feedback they give. Um, But we also do primary research reports. And so that's been really interesting for me to um, shape a survey, working with some of our internal experts around a topic we want to learn more about. And then we use that to um, build our recommendations and our insights that we share with the marketplace. It's great to be joining you, Danielle. I am Trudy Cannon. Um, I've been with Varent 11 years now. uh, And like Jenny has been through the organization, but really on the sales and the services side. Um, I'm now um, part of our go-to-market strategy. So my role is to really understand where the industry is heading um, with the workforce management tool. As a previous workforce management geek, we have this shift that's happening, but we've always been centered around data. WFM has been like the data geeks. We did all the the reporting. We used it to help kind of drive um, the improvement that we had. So helping customers understand where the industry is heading, how we can use that rich data to help automate things, bring more intelligence to the market. Um, But it's really kind of helping us shape the market or the strategy here at Varent to kind of develop our products. Um, I've been in the workforce management space like 20, almost 30 years. Um, So having that, having worked in the field really helps me understand where customers need uh, that automation and where we actually need to enhance our product to be able to support where the industry is heading. But happy to be joining you today. 
That's incredible. I feel so fascinated by the fact that both of you have been at the company for 10 plus years because it's been a while for me since I've talked to people who've actually been at a company for that long. Yeah, it's actually something that um, it snuck up on me. Um, you know, all of a sudden I was like, oh, I've been here five years and oh, I've been here eight years or, um, and then I have to think back through the, back to the year I started to remember how many years there are. Previous to Verant, I changed jobs every three and a half or four years. And I feel like my experience here has presented opportunities to raise my hand, to be part of different initiatives, to get involved in cross-functional projects, to say, oh, I'd really like to learn more about this. Or if you ever have an opening, you know, I'd love to have a further conversation with you. And so as I've been able to keep things challenging and interesting and learning new things. Um, it's kept me satisfied um, professionally, but also the people. I've just really enjoyed the different people who I've worked with. And as we've acquired new companies, we get lots of influx of new ideas too, um, which has been part of it. And very similar to Jenny, I was around that seven, five to seven year mark. But within those, I was actually changing roles within the organization. And like you said, it kind of snuck up on me to have been in pre-sales for six years. That was incredible in my, in my view. But I think because the industry keeps evolving and our products keep evolving, like Jenny said, it gives you, you know, something new to do and a different perspective even on your current role. So, yes, I am probably surprised I've been here 11 years. I, but I think because things keep changing, that keeps me kind of interested. I, I like to continue to hone in on skills. And I just don't think I can do that when I'm sitting stagnant in a role, especially if that role is not changing. Well, let's talk about that industry now. What are the main challenges that your industry and workforce management in that industry face today? And you know, how are you involved in solving them? When I was managing call centers, we would have people work these just solid shifts. I was going to either try to get the nine o'clock shift or the afternoon shift. And we did what we call shift bids, where we would create these schedules with maybe a tweak in the breaks and lunches. And employees would bid on that. You'd work five days, maybe a 10-hour shift with, four, uh, with three days off. But it was kind of stagnant that way. There was not much flexibility we only had things like phone calls that were actually coming in, and those were very defined with what we do. So things were pretty stagnant and, and limited in the flexibility that we have. Now, employees can work from home. I can chat with you. I can text with you through a message app. We've got all of this flexibility that is happening with customers and what they expect, but now after the pandemic, employees are expecting this bang and boom with flexibility as well. So they want to be able to work from home. If they are working in the office, they want some hybrid approach. They want some flexibility to their schedule now because not everything is service oriented with these you know, defined windows where we have to do business. So that flexibility has created this need for flexible capabilities within our solutions. Now, because customers are expecting more, employees are expecting more, we have to make sure that we adjust to that industry trend as well. But 
the key now is employees know that they are just as important as our customers and they are demanding the flexibility from us just like our customers would. To add to what Trudy said, in the past probably 10 years, um, there has been more of a growth towards digital. It exploded so much more during the pandemic, but we started seeing it before then. And we would have locations, not just from a contact center that we needed to schedule the staff to support, but also from a bank branch network. And so when less people would go into a branch location, we helped our customers plan the staff for who they needed in the branch. And some of that was for security or audit purposes. You always have to open with two people and close with two people. And you wanna make sure that the um, busy times around lunch or around paydays or on Fridays, you plan for all of these events, both historically and trending with a different sales campaign or a marketing campaign. And we needed to be able to do things differently, not just have always the same number of people on the same types of days. So we started hearing from our customers that they had employees who wanted to return to work after being home as part of a young family. But now that their kids were in school, they wanted to be able to do a shift that would start you know, maybe mid-morning, but be done by mid-afternoon. So there were more people who wanted to work part-time or you had people who had retired who wanted to get back into it and they had different amounts of flexibility. So we've really started to see um, the customer demand for support from the brands they work with change throughout the years. And there's a lot of really high expectations that if you pick up the phone, if you write an email, if you get on an online chat, you don't have to wait. There's somebody there to help you. And then that same expectation, as Trudy said, started to shift over into the employees too. If they had a change and, oh, I just got tickets to go to a concert tomorrow night. I want to be able to swap the shift I'm planned for with someone else who can pick it up and oh, my flight changed. Now I can get home earlier to attend my son or daughter's soccer game. So um, being able to help organizations still meet the needs of their customers, as well as delighting their employees has been something we've really been paying attention to. I'll just expand on that a little bit with that automation piece. So if an employee is sitting there wanting to trade schedules or wanting to take the day off, someone on the other side needs to make sure that they approve that request. But if I wanna give that employee that on-demand type of servicing, then I need some, some automation that can make that decision just like a human would. So with not just with this flexibility that we have, there's this need for automation as well. So as customers are in these digital channels, how do we help them fulfill their requests while they're in that? and even use some of that automation to support employees when they actually call in and do need some help. So that is just on top of some of the things that Jenny shared as far as trends. Yeah, and from an automation perspective, that just triggered another thought because um, we have the ability to automate those requests from staff. The manager doesn't have to physically approve two people um, swapping ships. So if they have um, the right skills, to trade shifts, if we have enough people on staff that this person can request time off, we can automate that approval process and it makes it easier for everyone. Um, on the other hand, I think 
uh, Trudy, you were also going to some of the automation and self-service that we offer through some of these um, interaction channels. So whether it's an uh, intelligent virtual assistant, a chatbot that's giving answers or um, enabling a customer to be on a website and search the same knowledge for answers that a customer service agent on the phone would be providing them if they called in. Um, there's a lot of um, capabilities and predictive technology that's used in automating those answers so that people can do it self-service as well as um, with that human assistance and empathy. Do you feel like the automation might take off some of the edge when it comes to approving or I'm using this word funnily, disapproving? Absolutely, because there is no bias there and the employees know that there's no bias there. It is approving it on a first come first serve basis. So it's not like some human has missed something like we have had to do in the past. And it's not like someone can supersede the process either. Now, if there are um, emergencies and things like that, we always want to make sure that we support the employee that way. But when we're managing these day-to-day -day requests, if I've got some automation there or there's no more PTO time left, then th that's a system thing. That's not someone um, gaining some favor from someone that they actually know. So it really lends well to employees because they know that there is no bias there and everyone is playing by the same fairness rules. Um, and even making sure that we have automation that can rotate those fairness rules is extremely important as well. When you think about things like overtime, we want to make sure that we rotate that through those employees who want to be able to work those additional hours. So if I've got, you know, unbiased automation that's there, but then something else that helps me rotate things fairly through the employee group or the workforce, then that's even more added value. So they definitely trust the system at that point. Yeah, that also makes me think of another area where technology has really evolved, and that's in um, the recording and listening to the phone calls. So um, when you call into a customer service line, into a contact center, you hear that line that everybody's used to, you know, this call may be recorded for quality and training purposes, or sometimes it's for security and risk purposes. You know, they have a different script. Well, very, very often, that's variant recording that's capturing that call. And historically, um, organizations have recorded some portion of their calls. Um, some customers only record samplings of calls, um, but we're seeing more and more organizations recording all their calls. Um, but it's not just about recording the calls. It's really important that they have that data, that copy of that interaction that they can review and listen to. And in the past, maybe 3% or maybe even less of those calls would actually be listened to by a human being. And that would be part of the quality monitoring process. So there would be a um, checklist. They would follow a script. Did they greet the customer the way they were supposed to? Did they offer a new promotion? Um, did they read the right disclosures? Did the customer get put on hold? So all of those things would go into a score for a certain portion of the calls that an agent would um, complete over a given month. And then based on those scores, there would be some coaching or e-learning if the um, supervisor or the quality analyst thought they needed some help. 
one of the big challenges in that was that it was such a small sample size that sometimes the most important calls are missed. And so to your point, Danielle, it was very often that having those conversations between an agent and a supervisor, they might hear, oh, well, of course you caught me on a bad day. That's the day you heard me, you know, and that's the one you're scoring. But I had so many excellent customer experience calls and you just aren't, you know, evaluating me fairly. Um, Or, you know, there is that human nature of people that you get along with and there's the objectivity challenge. Um, But we now have software that we work with a lot of our customers on that automates that process. So it can automatically evaluate the calls based on a form that you set up and it listens to the calls. So it uses our speech analytics engine and knows if someone is greeting um, the customer properly, if they're put on hold, if they agree to something before or after the disclosure. So it's gotten really sophisticated, but there's a lot of power in that. So instead of spending your time listening to the calls and evaluating the calls, you can actually be coaching your people and helping them to be even better. And when they're doing better and their customers are happier, everybody is happier all around. This episode is sponsored by Verant, the customer engagement company. You've heard a bit from Jenny and Trudy so far about how Verant helps the world's most iconic brands build enduring customer relationships by connecting work, data, and experiences across the enterprise. It's boundless customer engagement. If you're ready to close the engagement capacity gap at your organization, engage your customers, and create differentiated experiences, Verant is for you. From first impressions to putting your talent to best use, Verant opens and expands your brand possibilities. Learn more at Verant.com in the show notes. Now back to our show. Well, both of you are great people to ask about the evolution of technology because you have been at Verant for this time and seen so much evolution happen. So if you can tell me a little bit about the process of revamping and upgrading this technology and what it was like building any narratives you have to share would be incredibly interesting. I think I shared up in, in this industry quite some time and it was all Excel based to create any of our projections for the number of customers who needed to call in. We evolved from that and we got technology in place to be able to support us So there started to be, you know, certain algorithms and using the data to make sure that we project out the right information. But when you make that process start to become more complex based on the type of work that you're getting, then now you have to evolve um, that intelligence even more. And there's a difference from in our industry trying to manage how many customers are going to contact us in, say, a given day let alone an interval. But when you start to stretch that out, trying to get ahead of the curve and understanding how many people I need by month or say a three-year headcount plan, it gets extremely complicated. So our intelligence has had to grow to be able to support that, not only with those phone calls, but how I chat is very different than when someone calls in. And the fact that I can manage two or three different chats 
becomes even more complex. So, you know, that can get a little squirrely if I'm trying to use some inbred algorithm that's in an Excel document. So our products has had to evolve with that intelligence and AI to be able to use the data and the behaviors of each of the different types of work to accurately project when a customer is actually going to call us. So there has been this evolution that's been happening with our workforce management tool and in that industry for quite some time. But just when you think you've stopped evolving, then there's another different type of work or behavior that you have to enhance those algorithms and tune them to make sure that they account for. So there's been this natural evolution on the WFM side for some time. Yeah, and you actually um, remind me of another newer part of our portfolio, Trudy. So um, as part of the pandemic, you know, we saw trending in the marketplace that um, it was really hard to find people to work based on their skill sets, based on um, their availability. Some people were heading home and not really available to come in to do their jobs. Um, So the organizations needed more staff and then HR couldn't keep up with the demand. Um, So we have a solution called intelligent interviewing and I think it's really exciting because it helps organizations build a profile of the type of employee they're looking for. A potential employee could apply for a job and start the process of being interviewed or screened or um, evaluated for that job without having to have lots of meetings with an individual person. They can take uh, simulated tests so that our system will pick up on their empathy, um, learn their skills in customer service, and it gives a rating for these candidates to help us to anticipate um, their ability to be a customer service agent. And that also helps predict the employees that will stay longer. Um, So there's so much really cool technology out there. And um, each time I turn around, there's another part. Oh, we also are going to add this um, so that we have a broader mix to help our customers address their business challenges. Trudy, you might have some more you want to say on that side um, of our portfolio, too. No, I think it's, it's great that you highlighted that because we were talking about just bias in general. So when I take some of that out, even in the hiring process, then that is extremely important. But I also need to make sure that I'm finding the right employee for that type of work. So with intelligent interviewing, it helps us hone in on those skills that the employee really needs, because the goal, at least in our industry, is the employee retention, because there's so much that is actually tied to the cost of replacing an employee. Um, And when we start to just churn out employees, then it starts to take us longer to do things. So if we think about our data models in WFM, the more we have to cycle through that, the more it kind of wrecks that data model for us. So having things like intelligent interviewing and that um, intelligence behind it is really critical um, in our industry space. I think this is a perfect time to transition into how you at Verant empower both your 
employees and your customers to be data literate? Because it seems like there is a lot of work that both of you are putting in in that capacity to make sure that customers and employees both are well versed in your technology enough to really make the most use out of it. I think as we've evolved, as we have more customers that are moving to the cloud and the need to be agile and flexible, um, we're having a lot of education conversations around security of data, um, around um, retention of interactions, of all the things that you can do um, while still still keeping the identity and protection of that data um, within your environments. I think a lot of the conversations that I'm having are more around trending in the industry, um, the areas that our customers are investing in or seeing a need to invest in, a lot of customer experience investment, a lot of customer engagement um, investment, and also looking after their people. And part of that is the scheduling or helping them to see scoreboards of how they are performing so that they have that feedback loop that's always on. Um, I know that's a little bit more general, but I think a lot of the interactions I'm having are much more on the high level trends and thought leadership um, side of things. And I think on the, the just practical side, the use of that data is making sure that our customers understand that they can use all of the data because there is often a correlation between um, behaviors. So like Jenny said, we've got this huge um, platform of applications and all of that data can give you some great insight if you're actually using it together. So oftentimes we'll have customers who use you know, data or try to get the sources from, from one um, a location or application. But say if we used how I manage and how long it took me to, to handle a call with the outcome of that call and the customer survey scores as a result of that? Or how do I take those survey results and now start to feed things like uh, the routing or the orchestration of that work? So teaching our customers to use the entire subset of data, I think has been the most critical thing with you know just managing some of the applications um, within the suite and making sure that it's open and available to for them to use even outside of uh, the variant suite, um, because they're often trying to drive other models outside of our applications. So we want them to be able to access that, you know, to use in other internal data sources in their organization. So basically, you're saying that it's worth it to you to help your customers become data literate in their lives as a whole? Absolutely. Yeah, it's not only worth it, but we promote it by making sure that you can actually get access to that data to be able to use it in any way that you want. Yeah, we really like to emphasize we have an open approach. You know, so as part of our platform, we don't expect our customers to purchase every single one of our applications in order to have a complete way to interact with their customers. We'd love for them to do that, but at the same time, we know that our customers um, will approach and attack their own individual challenges a little bit differently than another customer, so they can start anywhere. So if we're working with them in recording and workforce management, that's great. And if they add other applications in our portfolio, they get even greater benefits. But 
Um, we think there's value in giving customers the choice and then showing them the benefits of working with us and our APIs, all the new modern approaches we're taking to um, technology um, because it's really making a difference for our customers. And then one other component of that is for customers who may be purchasing apps for say a new practice, say I'm doing analytics or I'm doing you know, a customer experience. We also wanna make sure that we're offering that customer those value added services to help walk them through how best to use that data. What are the appropriate use cases? How do we gain a return on investment from it? So it's not just supplying the data, but if I've got folks who have been in the field before have actually used that data in real life, we wanna make sure that we're offering that expertise to the customer. Um, because data for data's sake is one thing, but if we're actually driving outcomes, they know how to use it in specific business cases, then it becomes um, so much more important. So we wanna make sure that we not only provide it, but also walk them through how to use that data as well. You know, when you mentioned thought leadership, I've just noticed from my media bird's eye view perspective that a lot of companies that are on the forefront of this cloud revolution also take responsibility for educating the public at large. So, you know, most of the time they're going to stick with the person that taught them. And, you know, the few people that churn, it's just part of the system of educating everyone. Yeah, I think we do have a lot of customers that have um, been with us for a very long time. So um, we are always engaging them um, asking them for their feedback on what do they need in their products and capabilities. And so we want as many of them part of that journey with us. Um, so we also, if someone's already using some of our software on their premises, on location, in their data centers, but they want to add new capabilities from us, we encourage them to do that. They can add our applications in the cloud to the ones they have on premises. We don't force them to change everything out. Um, which I think is something that in the past um, some competitors have done, um, but we really like to give them that choice. Um, and when they're ready, you know, we've got a lot more capabilities in the cloud for them. And another thing is a good partner is going to make you successful. So if making you successful comes at the cost of now you may consider another solution, um, I don't think you should lend your partnership on that. So yes, our goal is to make sure that you take advantage of the software, but I think that's our stance with just being a good partner for the customer and making them as successful as possible. What are some of the main comments and complaints that you get from your customers about their transitions to the cloud? One of the obstacles that we have to work with our customers on, you know, it's the education. Um, we don't want them to expect that exactly how they do things on premises is going to be how they do things in the cloud. Um, we want them to understand that there are new ways of doing work. You know, we talked about how change just keeps coming. And the more we can embrace change, the more we can grow and scale and do better and more things. Um, so having those conversations around, okay, you have a business requirement to do this. We absolutely can do it in the cloud. It might look a little different than you're doing it on-prem today, but it doesn't mean that 
it's wrong. It's that this is how we have evolved the process. Um, we've made it easier, we've made it better. Um, so I think the biggest um, hurdle sometimes for customers who move to the cloud is either they don't really understand it or there is a hesitation because it's different. Um, and so sometimes that's the biggest obstacle for us to overcome. I think the other thing too is getting them to take advantage of everything that they have available in the cloud. So um, oftentimes when I upgrade, I transition, there are, and especially with our cloud environment, you are getting new features much more often than if you were um, an on-premise solution. So getting them tuned into that kind of new behavior and making sure that something's been released this month, it's been released last month, that they're really taking advantage of that. Because as the industry change, we're putting more things out there and even at a faster pace. So it's getting them to kind of shift that thinking of, you know, just like we did manufacturing uh, on the fly or kind of close to delivery, that same mindset has to be there um, with your technology. So knowing that I can actually enhance my processes much more often than say if I was only upgrading once a year or changing, you know, every 18 months. It's getting them used to taking advantage of new features much more often than they've had in the past. It's kind of like on your personal mobile phone. You know, we're used to getting a notification that there's a new operating system that's available. And there are always new capabilities and features that are being pushed out at us. Now, whether it's every four weeks, every two months, sometimes it'll be a week after the last one. But I think um, as consumers, we're more used to that and we welcome it more because, oh, wow, I'm sure there's some cool new feature that I'm now going to be able to do, or it's going to save my battery life. So it's having those same expectations then transferred to enterprise applications in the cloud, being able to, as Trudy said, oh, we're releasing new capabilities all the time. And it's a lot faster because it's in the cloud. We handle that for you, as opposed to you having to schedule your resources, budget for the upgrade, do all the data for that upgrade, test it, roll it out to your employees. If we do it in the cloud, we do it more often. Sometimes it's smaller changes and people just continue to learn how to do new things. And they see the features enhancements as, oh, didn't realize that. Now I have something cool I can do that makes my life even easier. So that's a big shift too. Change is scary. Um, at a personal level, I definitely struggle with any change. Um, even though I consider myself to be a pretty adventurous person, it doesn't matter. You know, it's not about personality. It's about this innate wanting to feel safe and be on top of things. So I think like with hybrid solutions um, and as we approach a more cloud-based ecosystem, the change happens, as you said, when people start to realize that their day-to-day -day lives and the way they move has been made better, you know, because then there's no more risk, there's just success. And speaking of success, I do want to turn the focus a bit on both of you as businesswomen, because my DataFem audience loves to hear about career stories and just what kind of made you realize, hey, I want to be in this tech environment. So I worked at United Airlines. I was actually on the phone as an agent, taking 100,000 mile flyers at that time. And our wholesale group was trying to create this spreadsheet to, to do projections for um, our forecast for the following year. 
I happened to be the only one who knew that software, which was odd. It was like this old version of an Excel document. I got into tech that way because at that point, I started doing some of the forecasting, went into workforce management, sort of did like the, the technology and the hardware um, that was on the site. And I have just progressed in these odd kind of additions to my career, which surprisingly makes me so prepared for the role that I'm in now, because I kind of, I, I teeter between this tech and this kind of business layperson. So I'm techie enough to be able to understand it, but not too techie that I can communicate it to someone. So I actually stumbled into it because I knew this software that they needed. So such an odd career start. I think I have a similar meandering path, I think, Trudy. When I um, went to college, I thought science and engineering. Um, and I went to a um, small, very good school, but apparently everybody else thought science and engineering too. So it was a big kind of, okay, now I'm, I'm in the middle of all these other people who are doing this. And uh, instead of graduating science and engineering, I decided, well, liberal arts, they keep saying liberal arts is the way to go. So I had a BA in English um, and I worked in marketing, kind of customer service role for about a year really didn't like it and thought, why did I turn away from science? And so I took a bunch of uh, additional prerequisites at Georgia Tech and ended up getting my master's at Emory in physiology and pharmacology, because I love to learn and put out the hypothesis and test it. And, you know, so very scientific. Um, but after I graduated with my master's, I ended up in nonprofit. So nonprofit at the National Kidney Foundation of Georgia. So it was um, educating people about kidney disease, but also about organ donation education. And they didn't have a website. So I learned how to design and build the website myself and do a lot of their PR and things. Um, then we moved to Birmingham, Alabama, and I needed a different job. And there was a... Um, an advertisement for a website marketing manager. And I thought, oh, I can do that. And it was at a bank. So I met with them and I started asking questions. Well, if you're going to be marketing on the website, don't you need to rebuild the website first? And how do you communicate all the information on the website to the people behind the scenes in the branches or in your different locations? And instead, I started down a path around e-commerce and implementing online banking and online trading and a lot of big data intense and design intense projects um, using technology. From there, I moved into website and internet banking at um, SunTrust Bank and then payments um, at S1 and then at Verant. So I think for me, it was staying inquisitive, being willing to learn, um, taking that next path um, when it was made available to me, um, and just being willing to learn new things and embracing the technology as it comes. In terms of coding, do you feel like even if you're not coding every day, that understanding kind of the syntax and the way that logic works is helpful? I think it definitely has been for me. When I was in payments, I was more product marketing for payments, but I went through the class as if I was actually processing the payments. 
And they thought it was so strange that somebody in marketing understood the class and could answer the questions. But for me, understanding how it works, I think Trudy said it too, helps me to be able to translate it so that it's understandable by people who don't know the technology. Yeah, and I have to get my hands on a good spreadsheet every now and again, or I just don't feel right. <laughs> Not and, me. Yeah, I'm so, okay with it. So, so QBR, you know, some charts, some data. I, I, I have to actually keep my hands in that. I find that fun. You are not alone in that. I definitely find rainy days with a spreadsheet on my laptop and a glass of wine and candles lit to be very magical. And now that we've heard a bit about your careers, I would love to hear any advice that you have to the next generation of data scientists, especially women in data science. My audience loves to hear advice from people who are at the top of their field. It's exciting that there's so many groups forming to fill those needs. Um, We are in the process of um, establishing an employee resource group around women in technology at Verant. Um, We've had a a more informal group meeting regularly and probably previewing for anybody who listens that this is coming imminently. But we found it so important to take it to the next level that that's something that um, there's a group of uh, leadership women that are going to be leading that for Verant. I think it's a combination of structured programs like that, but also those informal interactions of onboarding or welcome conversations and sharing what you do with someone who's just entering their career. Or we have a lot of great interns that we welcome to Verant, um, particularly in the summertime. And it's great to learn from them and also learn the types of questions they have. And that really just helps us to model um, the possibilities um, for them as they move forward with their careers. As women, especially in a tech field, there is this drive to feel like I have to be good at everything. And if I needed to code, now I need to know, I call Jenny. There are so many data specialties out there. And I think if we feel as if we have to be good at everything, then we are apprehensive with reaching out to others. So I say my advice is, go find your subject matter expert. That makes me smart that I'm actually leaning on the the people who have that expertise. But as I'm developing that relationship, then I kind of gain knowledge, but I'm also able to share knowledge and mentor. So being a new hire is great and mentoring interns is great. But I think even in advanced careers, there are folks who can mentor each other and share knowledge that one may not have because you may not have experienced that in your career up to that point. So being able to tap into expertise, even at an advanced career level is extremely helpful. And it makes you even smarter um, by reaching out to, to someone who knows more in that lane than you actually have that knowledge right now. Yeah, I really like what you said, Trudy, about later on in your career, because well, you know, I never want to consider myself old, but I definitely have been (laughs) in technology for a while. But, you know, I feel like the more we are willing to reach out and learn from others, you know, I love cross-functional projects because I get to hear different perspectives from people 
that, you know, I wouldn't have necessarily brought that idea forward or that solution forward. And, you know, just having that relationship makes me strong because I now know that here's this other person that I can turn to for insights or suggestions and recommendations. Um, so I think that's, that's a great suggestion. I love what both of you said. There's so many people who are so high up in their careers who still seek peer-to-peer -peer mentorship. And mm -hmm. at least for me, you know, the most attractive thing someone can tell me, especially if they know a lot, is I don't know. Because there's so much pressure to kind of be the authority because everybody's, you know, pretending that they are the authority of such and such. And knowledge speaks for itself. I can't say how grateful I am to have both of you here today to talk about all this range of topics. And it's been really wonderful. I hope that we can continue to stay in touch. And I will be putting more information about things that might have come up in the show notes. So listeners, please, please check that out. And for those of you who have decided to stick it out with us on Twitter, I am very active at Data. That's my handle. You can follow me there and continue conversations like this one, start new ones. Let's get that interaction going. I love hearing from you all. You'll never be mine